live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And good evening and welcome to the show. It's a lovely Saturday night here in Toronto, a lot chillier than it sort of started the day, kind of nice and warm and sunny, and then, boy, got chilly real quick, just in time for my afternoon nap, a little bit of rain, that cool bro- ble- breeze blowing out there. It was nap time extraordinaire. Anyway, but I'm here, and I'm fresh, and I'm ready to chat and chat, talk with you about the stuff that we do uh, deal with here on Road to Recovery, and it's really just about things that, you know, make us uh, think twice about what's going on in our lives, maybe second-guess some of the choices other people are making and we're making ourselves and kind of just helping each other get through that other side. And if you've never met me before, my name is Yona Bud. I'm the clinical director and the co-founder at The Farm in Stouffville, as well as recoverinhome.com. Uh, I'm also a broadcaster here with all of you. And, um, yeah, we're, uh, we're rocking and rolling, having a good time, trying to do what I can to uh, share information that make people's lives a little bit easier. Doing a lot of coaching these days, a lot of performance work, which is uh, a lot of fun to do and uh, seems to uh, really impact uh, others in terms of their abilities to do things uh, better, stronger, more different, less grief, less stress, right? Less aggravation. Anyway, I go on. So that's who I am. I'd like to meet all of you. Nice to see you all. Nice to meet you all. Welcome to our show here at on 640 Toronto. I'm in the studio tonight with Natasha and Danny. We're so happy to be here, and we will take your call when that time is appropriate, which could be right now if you want it to be. So give me a call, 416-870-6400. Let me know what you think. Do you think online learning is what's causing the mental health issues amongst young people these days, college, university, high school kids? I don't really think so. I uh, I think that a uh, bit of a technical scapegoat. So why why it's wrong, frankly, to blame online learning for causing mental health? Post-secondary student mental health is in crisis, as we all know. I'm talking about an article here from Stephanie Moore. Uh, research shows students' mental health was adversely affected in the pandemic, and this falls on the heels of pre-existing concerns that campuses were struggling to keep up with the demand for mental health services. So over the past two and a half years, people, including educators, and of course academics and educational administrators, politicians, all of those folks, uh, they've argued that online learning is detrimental to student or family mental health or well-being. We're suggesting not necessarily, uh, partly or largely on the basis that this is perceived relationship may have urged universities and schools to return to in-person learning. Uh, the relationship doesn't really hold water according to the experts. So they've all gathered, they've gathered some information here, uh, in a, in a study. Um, and the, uh, they analyzed all the literature that they could find that related to mental health and online remote learning. And what was discovered that the findings in the literature are, they're mixed, right? And any assertions about a relationship between, uh, online learning and mental health are, are, uh, really not, are confounded by research quality and pandemic grief. So what they're suggesting here is that it's really hard to gain a good uh, benchmark on this particular study because there were so many other things going on. And you know what? I got to tell you, I'm sure that the experts out there, the so-called experts out there and politicians and people representing families and parents and such, 
They're all looking for a reason why these kids are really in a bad way today and looking to point fingers at things like online learning. So for sure they can blame the government or blame whoever, you know, proposed online learning and, 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 you know, um, stuck with it, you know, suggested it as a means by which kids, kids could continue to get an education while being locked down. And now that the lockdown is quote unquote over, uh, then we are now in a position where, you know, kids could be going back to school or doing online learning. And here's the problem. Here's the real rub, my friends, right? Listen clear, closely. This is, if online learning is a good thing, then the concern we have here is that it's getting mixed and mashed in with um, information and statistic, uh, statistic, statistical data, excuse me, and it's not consistent with, the, the end result, meaning what? What am I saying here in garbled English? That there are a lot of other things going on during that same period of time that contributed heavily to the discomfort and lack of uh, stable mental health, high suicidality rates, uh, high high level of of, uh, of um, anxiety, depression amongst young people, amongst everybody, frankly, but certainly amongst young people, which is the model we're looking at right now. And it has a lot more to do with what was going on in those days, much more so than just the online learning modules. That was just a means by which to get the kids some kind of education so they didn't blow a complete year or two, as it turned out. So to look at it and say online learning is the cause of anxiety and depression and you know uh, high suicidality amongst young people is an unrealistic conclusion, I think, based on the little world that I live in, and the amount of uh, interaction I have with young people in my practice, right? So what we're finding uh, is is really different. What we're finding is that uh, it had a lot more to do with social isolation, had a lot more to do with the issues that their their parents were having, um, you know, difficulty with uh, the stress of not going to work, maybe financial issues and so on, uh, difficulties just being young, the difficulty of not getting out and getting the physical release and relief that they need, right? So lots of things going on. And, and, a lot, and you know, I got to tell you, prior to the pandemic, we were having a really hard time with young people and their mental health anyway. So here's why this evidence is problematic. The vast majority of research on the topic was conducted, dur- conducted during the pandemic, so it's a, it's a skewed environment, as they would say, right? It's, everyone wasn't in the greatest frame of mind anyway. But failed to, to, to control, right? But failed to control for the pandemic. This is important because mental health is the, uh, is, is directly linked to the pandemic. So most studies judge the effectiveness of online remote learning by asking people whether they were satisfied with their education. Satisfaction is perfect, per, you know, perhaps the poor word, uh, poor proxy for effectiveness. And some studies found relationships between mental health and remote learning, but asserted that remote learning caused declines in mental health without using the kinds of statistical methods necessary to establish casual relationships. That's according to the the studies the experts are sharing with us. So how do we, you know, we're, we're going to come back to this later in the show as well, uh, just for those of you that uh, might catch up to me later on um, and not tune in at the moment. But the reality is that there's a lot of pieces in, in the puzzle uh, as it relates to what caused and what has caused the decline in young people's mental health 
and just general, uh, you know, stability in terms of anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, uh, suicide thoughts, and so on. And just, you know, any kind of desire to go forward. Like a lot of kids have lost their, their motivation. So uh, lots to talk about, and it's more than just online learning that God is here. Uh, so to peg it all on online learning as the solution uh, or the cause, I think is unrealistic and puts a, a the bad puts a really bad light on something that could be really good. There's a lot of benefits to online learning, and I saw it with some of my patients. Uh, and we can talk about that in a little bit as we get uh, into the show. When we come back uh, from break here, uh, we're going to talk about the change in nicotine reduction in cigarettes and how that's designed to hopefully get people off of uh, being addicted to cigarettes, which, which would be an amazing thing if we could do that. So when we come back, we're going to talk about that a little bit. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. My name is Yona Bud. I'm your host this evening. You're on the road to recovery here at 640 Toronto, and we really appreciate you joining us this evening. Uh, the U.S. government's call for deep nicotine reduction in cigarettes could save millions of lives, according to experts. Uh, they study tobacco addiction, and uh, uh, what they're talking about here is that cigarettes are the only legal consumer product that, when used as intended, causes the premature death of half a long term of half of the long-term users to address this long-standing health threat in Jan in uh, late June 2022 the Biden Harris administration announced a plan to move forward with a new standard for cigarettes and other combusted tobacco products that would make them minimally or non-addictive uh, interesting uh, situation here we have an expert with us um, his name is Jonathan Folds he's a professor of public health sciences and psychiatry at Penn State University uh, doctor thank you for joining us this evening thank you I'm good to be here excellent um, so you know reading this article is really um, kind of interesting I'm, I, I guess the idea is that the, they're trying to to, to basically create a, a cigarette light that uh, you know people will will then you know smoke less of or be less impacted by um, the quick question I have for you before we get into this whole thing of you know like does that just, you know in your mind though I, I, certainly in my mind as an addiction counselor one would think that if someone you know needs X amount of nicotine in their system um, are they just not going to smoke twice as many? Well, yes, that was that was one of the concerns uh, uh, about this policy, and therefore the National Institutes of Health and the FDA have funded a series of studies uh, where people are randomised to very low nicotine cigarettes versus regular nicotine cigarettes, and and followed up, and uh, lots of measures are taken to to see what happens. We just published one of those studies. And the studies have been pretty consistent in finding that that's not what happened. They did not do what used to be called compensatory smoking, like inhaling more smoke or smoking more cigarettes to try and get as much nicotine. Because the, that's what would happen if you reduce the nicotine by maybe 10 or 20 or 30%. But this proposal is to reduce the nicotine by 95% so that you couldn't really smoke enough to get anything close to your normal nicotine levels, the kind of levels that are reinforcing. And what, what these studies almost all find is that people instead get less reinforcement and smoke fewer cigarettes and get less toxic exposure. 
Right. So um, basically weaning them off, I guess. Is that what's happening over time? Well, um, uh, the, the studies are not the studies that, that we've been involved in, and almost all the studies are very low nicotine cigarettes. We have to recruit smokers who don't want to quit because if they wanted to quit, we should help them quit. Right. right. So for ethical right. reasons, we're only recruiting smokers with no plans to quit, <clears throat> and so they are not quitting studies, and that's not really the, the the basic idea behind the proposal. The idea behind the proposal is people can continue to smoke if they like, but we want them to not continue to be addicted to the cigarettes. Uh, And so by taking about 95% of the nicotine content out of the cigarettes, there's so little nicotine in there that you get very little reinforcement. And what we find is that people just start to smoke fewer cigarettes, their dependence gets less. And then when they try and quit, as they did in our study, at the end of the study, when they're given an offer of help, those who are randomized to very low nicotine cigarettes were about four times as likely to successfully quit smoking. So it says that the, according to the 2018 FDA study, Federal Drug Administration study, they projected that by the year 2060, a reduced nicotine standard for cigarettes could reduce the smoking rate dramatically from around 13% now to well below 2%. That's the prevention of 16 million people from becoming regular smokers. So it's 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 basically taking away the the charge or the buzz or the reward that you get, so you choose to smoke less, which is where you're then connecting uh, or disconnecting the the addiction piece. Correct? Exactly. Yes. Okay. So how does this kind of how is this going to work? Over time, like I know a lot of people that have tried to quit smoking and they use e-cigarettes as a means by trying to quit smoking. Of course, you know, being in the addiction business, we're constantly trying to help people quit smoking using behavioral change and and other forms of of supports, uh, different kinds of of strategies and so on. But when it comes to the physical part, um, the majority of the people that I see going from cigarettes to, to a vaporizer um, if anything, seem to be going up in their nicotine intake versus going down in their nicotine intake. How is this different than the strategy designed or suggested around the design, uh, the initial design years ago of, of e-cigarettes? So this, this proposal is not directly related to e-cigarettes. It's only for combustible tobacco, you know, cigars I, and I, cigarettes. Yep, yep. So, so, and, uh, and so it, it, the plan would be that at some time in the future, and it's probably quite a few years away, the United States government would tell the tobacco industry, as of such and such a date, you can only sell cigarettes with you know, so much nicotine in them. And that amount would pro- probably be in the ballpark of 95% less than they currently contain. And so people would know about it. People would be prepared for it. Undoubtedly, there'd be a little bit of uh, stocking up uh, from smokers that didn't didn't you know wanted the same nicotine as they currently have, but there would come a point where 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 you you couldn't get high nicotine cigarettes anymore, and people would would gradually we expect just like in the studies that have been done find that they didn't get as much satisfaction from the cigarettes they didn't like them as much and they smoked less and less and people once they became less addicted. At that point, when they tried to quit, they would be more successful because they're not as addicted. As you know, right now, about half the smokers in the United States and probably a similar proportion in Canada try and quit every year. Um, 
the, the average 45-year-old man or woman who's been a smoker, you know, since the since a teenager, the average person's tried to quit more than 20 times. You know, they're, yeah. they're trying to quit about once a year on average. Um, but because they're so addicted and the cigarettes that they... They, they can get are highly addictive. They, they, they relapse very quick, frequently. So the idea is that once the industry can only sell very low nicotine cigarettes, the addiction part would be taken away and it would be much easier for people to quit. So what's the benefit of selling cigarettes at all? It's, is it just the cool factor or the, you know, the, like the, the, the placebo factor oh, of holding it in your hand yeah. and in your mouth? Like, wh- where's, the, where's the benefit if you're really not getting the nicotine surge that most people look for? So y- your question was, what's the benefit of selling cigarettes? And, and quite frankly, there, there's no real benefit. The, yeah, exactly. the simple reality is that in, in the United States, the way the Tobacco Control Act that was uh, enacted in 2009 was written, um, it prohibits the government from banning any class of tobacco products. Um, And it prohibits the government from taking nicotine completely out of cigarettes. But it gives them the power, it gives the FDA the power to reduce the amount of nicotine, uh, you know, by by a large amount. And so... They're not allowed to ban cigarettes as a class with the current legislation. And so this plan is to do as much as they can do to make them non-addictive within the laws as it was was passed in 2009. So it's like uh, basically banning alcohol. So you want to ban alcohol, but you can't. So you're coming up with a a reduced next to zero amount of alcohol. So at least you can say you're selling some of it. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. That's it. And, but, but coming back to your question about e-cigarettes, so, so this, this would be for combustible products. And, and the reason it would focus on those cigarettes and cigars and the like is because they cause by far the most harm. The other things that cause the lung cancer, emphysema, and most of the heart attacks, etc. And so decisions will have to be made about how to regulate other nicotine products like e-cigarettes, as you mentioned, yeah. and smokeless yeah. tobacco and the like. Yeah. I happen to be one of the ones that believes that that this plan will be more feasible and more able to work if we allow the less harmful, not harmless, but less harmful tobacco products to stay on the market. And the reason for that is that there is a risk that, that otherwise there will be a big demand for illegal smuggled high nicotine cigarettes, yes, uh, and we can we can uh, and you know that's I think Canada's had the experience of certain districts trying to raise the taxes by a a very large amount and found that it was difficult to maintain because cigarettes get smuggled from you know across the border and, and various things, um, and that's that's there's always going to be a problem with smuggling and illegal supply of high, high nicotine cigarettes, I think the government will have to prepare how to tackle that. And I think one of the ways to reduce the demand for those is to give people the choice to switch to high nicotine but much less harmful non-combusted products like e-cigarettes or snus or products like that. Nicotine pouches is another option. 
Okay, when we come back, I'd like to pick up uh, pick up on that. I know you're going to stick with us here for the next segment. I want to pick up on the whole illegal cigarette thing, rolling your own, buying uh, packages of uh, drum tobacco. I'm going to share my stories of quitting smoking off and on over the years. But uh, we'll be back right with you uh, here just in a minute. And we're talking to Jonathan Folds. He's the professor of public health sciences and psychiatry at Penn State University. And uh, we're going to come back and talk about reduced nicotine cigarettes and whether that's going to change the world. Hopefully it is. So uh, stick with us. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud here at 640 Toronto. We're talking about... uh, cigarettes and tobacco and the reduction of the amount of nicotine that the Food and Drug Administration in the United States is going to allow, hopefully allow uh, manufacturers of cigarettes, uh, they're going to force them basically to reduce the number according to our expert. His name is Jonathan Folds. He's the professor of public health sciences at the, and psychiatry at Penn State University. Uh, Dr. Folds, thank you for joining us again and being part of the show with us. Um, so back to this conversation we were having, you and I, before the break <clears throat> um, about illegal cigarettes. You know, like anything else, um, if you really want to get the, you know, the 85% THC marijuana, you can still get it, even though Ontario cannabis stores here and, and cannabis stores in, in, in Canada, you know, will reduce the amount of, 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 uh, THC allowing, uh, allowed uh, to be sold by so much. But you can get pretty much anything you want these days, right? In terms of black market, gray market, uh, uh dark market, you know, there's lots of ways to get it. Um, how does that play into your thinking? I know you started to talk about it before we had to go to break. Uh, let's pick up on that if we could. Well, I th- I think that for this plan to be highly effective, it will require uh, the government to prepare uh, methods to prevent the smuggling of illegal high nicotine cigarettes. Uh, it may have to involve kind of using kind of modern technology to, you know, to have things like barcodes, etc., that are and maybe other methods and stamps on the cigarette packs to make it hard, easier to track cigarettes um, as they as they're moved across the world and into the United States or other countries that are going to do this. New Zealand's also planning to have this policy as well, um, so yeah. they can be tracked, and so that if any of the cigarette companies um, try to assist with law breaking, as sometimes has happened in the past, uh, and make it easy for smuggling to take place, then they'll they'll have to bear the consequences of that. So I think I think that that's why we don't think this is going to be implemented you know, next year or the year after. It will probably be quite a few years in the future, um, and they'll have to prepare for that. And it's also the reason why uh, many people believe that it's important that there are alternative sources of, of lower-harm nicotine, like, like e-cigs or, or snus products and things like that, so that it reduces the demand for nicotine from from cigarettes. So, are we are we concerned um, in terms of a public from a public health perspective? Um, are we concerned that um, 
someone chews it or or uh, or uh, has it available in some form of of uh, uh, e uh, e delivery so that it's less there's less smoke like once we take the quote unquote combustible part out of the out of the equation so you're not smelling it people around you aren't getting impacted from it and perhaps less impact on your lungs um, obviously this is something that they were talking about during world lung cancer day um, but is the intent to get people away from smoking anything and and not necessarily reducing the availability of nicotine per se like is the nicotine addiction the big issue here or is it the impact it's having on secondhand quote unquote secondhand smokers and people like well, that no it's not it's not i don't think the primary issue is the effect of secondhand smoke the primary issue is the is the effects on health of smoking cigarettes of inhaling smoke into your lungs and all the consequences that, that we know about. I think you started your segment saying that only legal product that kills 50% of long-term users. So the idea is to get people off of combustible products because those are the ones that cause by far the most harms to health. That's not to say that nicotine is good for you. It's not. And it's not to say that, that there are no harms from you know, nicotine pouches or nicotine gum for that matter, but it's, it's on a different magnitude than the harms from from highly addictive, highly harmful combusted products like cigarettes. So the idea is to make cigarettes less attractive, less addictive, so that people can have a choice whether they continue to smoke or not, and to make it less likely that a new generation of, of teenagers will become cigarette smokers. And for those people who are currently addicted to nicotine to, to have much less harmful products available on the market that they can switch to when the nicotine is withdrawn from their cigarettes. So when you're looking when you're looking at this whole when you're looking at this whole thing and you're seeing it from the perspective of overall health, um, you know, I like you know looking at so for example, let me go back to rephrase this whole thing a little bit here. Um, you know, I I, I I I would smoke off and on and quit off and on. Um, you know, and the, the the quitting was the quitting part was the the you know mental health and anxiety piece that we'll get to here in a second while we still have time. But you know, the 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 desire to give up the smoking was very different than the desire to give up the nicotine. And I know a lot of a lot of people, uh, some are patients, some are, are just friends and colleagues, uh, who chew a ton of nicotine gum and haven't had a cigarette in 20 years. Um, and from their perspective, they're, you know, they're improving their physical health. Is that a fair yeah, statement? You're right. That's absolutely correct. I mean, nicotine on its own, without the 7,000 other chemicals in cigarette smoke, is not entirely harmless, but it's it's maybe maybe a few percent of the harms of of smoking cigarettes. So somebody who switches completely to nicotine gum uh, yep. is 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 taking a big step forward for their health. It's good to know. So the, the where where we are now, then we're looking at it. Um, where where we are now at, in terms of the story. Now we're reducing the amount of, um, you know, we're reducing the combustibles. A lot of people that smoke, a lot of people that smoke, you know it, I know it, a lot of people that smoke, uh, so I'll give you a great example. You know, you drive past uh, a 12-step meeting for, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, and, you know, it's usually in some church and or some, you know, building of some sort where people gather. And, you know, prior to 10, 15 minutes prior to the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or Cocaine Anonymous meeting or 
you know, any of the anonymous meetings, uh, people are in droves are outside sucking on cigarettes. Um, the question then becomes the, the, the reduction in the, um, I guess the, the 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 effect that you get from holding it and, and, and having it in your hand, having it in your mouth. Um, have you looked at how to replace that, if that's replaceable even, or is that just something people eventually will just learn to live without? Uh, well, pe- people will learn to live without, but that's part of the attraction of, of the newest product, which is electronic cigarettes, and that that's the product that more completely replaces much of the habit uh, the, the, you know, and the ritual that there is with cigarette smoking, and that's why part of the reason that these products have become particularly, you know, very popular. Um, and the other part is that the modern ones are able to kind of mimic the nicotine delivery of a cigarette without the seven thousand other harmful chemicals. Um, but it, it's very clear that you know the the ritual and the habit of of, of smoking kind of gradually gets associated with the nicotine. But if it wasn't for the nicotine in cigarettes, people would be no more likely to smoke cigarettes than they would be to blow bubbles. Okay? You know, there's a, there's a, there's a ritual to, to that, and, and you see the bubbles <laughs> go up in the air, but there's yeah. nothing in that, that that's reinforcing. Uh, that's, actually a, that's actually a quote from uh, a famous professor in the UK called Professor Michael Russell. He once made that statement comparing it with blowing bubbles. Um, <laughs> but the, 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 the key part is actually the, the rapid nicotine delivery. Um, and if we could get smokers to not be as addicted to their products so they can more easily make a choice to quit, that would have a massive effect on, on public health in whichever country this happened. Right now, the United States is proposing to do it and New Zealand is proposing to do it. And uh, it's worth thinking about for Canada as well. Talk to me a little bit about the, some of the studies that you're that you actually have been involved in and seen the results of in terms of how people are actually acting and reacting to it. You know the the the, yeah. the, the individuals themselves. Yeah. So the mo- the most recent one that we published was a randomised trial of uh, very low nicotine cigarettes versus normal cigarettes in smokers with mood and anxiety disorders. Because uh, right. and, and we chose to do that because there is a concern that, you know, if this became a, a policy for the whole country, that there could be some people whose mental health is vulnerable and that the effect of, of potentially the effect of nicotine withdrawal uh, when the, their, the nicotine in their cigarettes drops significantly could adversely affect their mental health. So our study was partly designed to see whether there's, there's any concerns about that. And there's also a bit of evidence that people with mental health problems tend to be more addicted to their cigarettes. And, you know, there was this question, might those people actually smoke more for a period of time to try and get more as much nicotine out of the very low nicotine cigarettes? And what we found was that neither of those things happened. The people with mental health problems in our study, when the ones that switched to very low nicotine cigarettes, their mental health measures really didn't change at all. Uh, and certainly no different from the ones who continued on the high nicotine cigarettes. Uh, and also, we did not find that they, that they increased their cigarette consumption or their smoke consumption. So those those concerns proved to be ill-founded, but they were something we thought we'd better check. You know, it's one of the things you want to make sure is not a concern before you implement a policy like this. We then, at the end of the trial, which lasted 18 weeks, 
we gave the participants then a, 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 a choice to either go back to their own high nicotine cigarettes, their own brand, yeah. or to stay in the cigarettes they'd been randomised to, and some of them have gotten used to smoking very low nicotine cigarettes, some were high nicotine research cigarettes, or to get help to quit. And what we found was that those who'd been using the very low nicotine cigarettes were slightly more likely to choose to try and quit. But And if they did choose to try and quit, they were significantly more likely to succeed. And that's consistent with the measures that we had in the study, showing that they, they rated themselves as becoming less addicted. And, that, and, and the, you know, the quitting part kind of substantiated that, the ratings, by finding that they actually were more likely to quit, about four times as likely. That's an amazing, uh, amazing outcome. Hopefully this moves forward. I appreciate uh, you joining us tonight. Hopefully this study uh, will uh, drive some, uh, some uh, move forward to make this a reality. Obviously, the, uh, tobacco companies aren't going to be thrilled about it, but, you know, who cares? Talking to Jonathan Folds, Professor of Public Health Sciences, Sciences and Psychiatry at Penn State University, we're talking about reduced nicotine cigarettes. Very cool. It's very cool that there's people out there looking at it, studying this, and uh, coming up with ways that we don't kill ourselves uh, as we are uh, when we pick, put a cigarette in our mouths. We'll be back shortly here with some more stuff. We're going to talk about opioid use disorder and people not getting the follow-up they need, and uh, that's really important. So we'll join me here, Road to Recovery, Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud. I'm your host this evening. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, so glad to have you here. And know you have other choices, but we're glad that you chose us. Um, sitting here talking to my friend Natasha about all kinds of stuff. And, you know, we were just thinking about that whole cigarette thing we were just talking about in the, with uh, uh, Dr. Folds. And it'd be really cool if we could reduce the number of uh, people smoking uh, the way that they are and what they are, such that uh, the world would just be a safer place, a healthier place for kids and for adults. People would live longer, less uh, strain on the hospital system, just a very, very cool project. And uh, glad that there's people like him out there doing what it is he does to bring that around and make those kinds of things happen. It takes a long time, a lot of pushback from all kinds of people before you can make that uh, switch from a... Uh, you know, something like less alcohol, like less, you know, less percentage of alcohol in, in the type of drinks that are served. You get a lot of pushback from the alcohol companies, but eventually it all works itself out. So there are a few patients, a few patients with opioid use, opioid use disorder. They get the kind of follow-up that they need after rehab. So it's, uh, you know, in the United States, it's much easier to get uh, residential rehab. Uh, many, uh, many opportunities are paid for uh, by third-party insurance or insurance that you get from work. Many companies insure their employees, which includes rehab. So uh, there's a lot of insurance coverage, uh, much harder to get insurance coverage here in Canada for the same kind of care. Uh, so most people pay out of pocket or, or the government provides programs to the best of their ability. But recovery from addiction doesn't end after rehab. Right. So rehab, as I explained to people, I have re I have a, I have residential facilities. I also have 
recovery and home facilities, outpatient programs, and so on. I, I deal with patients in uh, with um, with uh, use disorder, opioid use disorder, or substance use disorder, alcohol use disorders, um, in lots of different forms, right? And the one thing that we know for sure is that going to rehab for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days is not enough unto itself. So, for example, at the farm in Stouffville, where I'm the clinical director and co-founder, uh, patients come for a minimum of 30 days. Some stay 45, 60, whatever is, is appropriate, whatever works for them as part of their, their treatment plan. But there's a ton, a ton of follow-up. We spend a lot of money making sure that we have staff in place to provide ongoing daily um, follow-up and aftercare and alumni programming and programming for families so that they can participate and continue to participate forever. It's, you know, when you when you come to the farm, for example, and I don't want to make this an ad, but when you come to the farm and you have a lifetime of aftercare, we have people that have been coming, you know, for six, seven years later, and they're still coming, and their families are still coming. And frankly, those represent the 50% that are successful. It's remarkable. So patients with opioid use disorder require follow-up. And the kind of follow-up that we provide mostly to these types of people, people that are coming out of residential care, is something called um, medication for, for opioid use disorder. Okay, So they're, they're, they're coming out of care, out of residential care, hopefully without opioids in their system, but part of the recovery process, at least in the U.S., and I must say here as well, <clears throat> is they get doctors will flip them over to something like uh, bupropamine, which is like uh, methadone or or suboxone or naltroxone. Some of these are the gold standard for outpatient care for those with opioid use disorder. But let me tell you something. If you talk to somebody that actually has opioid use disorder, they would much rather stop using heroin or Oxycontin or whatever or, or fentanyl or whatever they're using, they'd much rather come off of that than try to withdraw or detox from methadone or suboxone. It's harder to come off of methadone and suboxone, which is the, the medication used, the, the, the medication used for opioid use disorder management if people aren't into therapy. By the way, there's a million other ways, not a million, there's many other ways to treat someone with opioid use disorder, the least of which, I mean, I probably have four, maybe 500 patients currently that use CBD and some that use CBD and THC in place of opioids or in place of methadone or suboxone. They function well. They're able to eat. They're able to sleep. They're not reliant on um, having to go to a, a dispensary like people that have um, you know, the need for methadone or suboxone, bupropamine, right? <clears throat> so when you come off of an opioid and get put on an opioid antagonist, you're just as dependent but you're not getting high, you're not likely to rob, steal, or cheat, and you don't get sick. It's a way to get past the illness, excuse me, of opioid withdrawal. But coming out of residential care should give you skills, strategies, and others, other things that you can use to go forward. But the majority of research, rehab facilities, residential rehab facilities, are primarily driven by the 12-step recovery program. So that's uh, 12-step, you know, for Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, Cocaine Anonymous. <clears throat> and as much as that's a very good support program, it's not therapy. It's not therapy. And, you know, a lot of people that are on methadone and suboxone don't feel like they're received or accepted well in these programs that require absolute abstinence. 
So even these programs that are available may not be available to those that are not completely abstinent. So completely abstinent means no drugs, nothing off the street, certainly not using weed or anything like that, any form of, of cannabis. It's not allowed, right? It's just not considered um, a useful tool in recovery. But if in the world like I live in, in the world of harm reduction, anytime you can take an opioid addict or someone who is uh, on methadone for four or five years, 10 years, 20 years, and take them off of that, and they then become, um, they then become, they then use a regular routine or regimen, uh, regime of, of, um, of um, uh, CBD, which is the, the non-psychoactive part of the marijuana plant. Some use CBD and THC, you know, THC in the evening for sleep and appetite and any kind of pain any discomfort, aches and pains as a result of, of, of detox and withdrawal. So the proper form of, of management for people who are coming out of um, programs, residential programs for opioid dependency, in my mind, isn't just, isn't another opioid. I mean, in the, in the case for harm reduction where someone's likely not going to, not going to survive the, 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 the treatment plan. But if you're in residential treatment, you best be learning skills and strategies not just studying the big book. You best be learning things like mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy and good old-fashioned talk therapy and, and, and work around anger management, work around uh, dealing with you know regrets and resentment and all those ugly things that we deal with and learning how to better understand your triggers so that you can control them. You know, the, the way to deal with an addiction is to understand what triggers the, the use of the things that we use that aren't good for us and put systems and strategies and abilities and, and, and other things, distractions and, and other things in place so that we don't use things or do things that aren't good for us or that likely would cause us to make choices where we rob, steal, and cheat, which we don't want to be in that place, obviously, because that's where all the whole all the illegal stuff comes from, right? So just switching somebody from one thing to another, I don't think is the answer. But for sure, when somebody comes out of residential treatment, there needs to be some form of recovery support. And that, you know, I think it's great that uh, 12-step programs exist and they're out there. Uh, they serve a purpose. But I'm a big smart recovery person. We believe in and support smart recovery in our practice, um, certainly in recovery at home. It's primarily a, a smart recovery-based peer support program for that part of the, of the treatment. Smart recovery is just a little more, um, gives you a little more functional tools and strategies and things you can use, not necessarily just rely on on um, on some of the policies within the 12-step program. Frankly, anything that does the job and keeps people from making mistakes and hurting themselves, um, I think is a good thing. But there are ways to support um, people coming out of residential care. Um, and the way to do that is great aftercare. Make sure whatever facilities you join have great, if you decide to go for residential care, have excellent aftercare support and are there for you um, when you slip, if you slip and fall. Lots of people do. That's part of the recovery program. You can talk about this forever. Anyway, got to go. Got to make, make, uh, allow for some commercials here. Pay the bills. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. My name is Yonah Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Hopefully you took a break there during, uh, during our long stretch. Got up, stretched your legs, had a drink, did what you needed to do, and came back. And if you're a smoker, and still smoking even after the show, after what we just talked about, well, hopefully you got that into your system, and now you can settle down 
and hang out with us. Uh, you're listening to me. My name is Jonah Budd. I'm your host this evening on 640 Toronto and do very much appreciate you being a part of what we've got going on here. Uh, we're talking tonight about sports betting. Um, and we've talked about it before on the show. Uh, many, uh, addiction therapists and people that deal with obsessive compulsive behavior, um, they are concerned as I am being one of those therapists. We're concerned about the, the, depiction of sports betting these days and the ease by which it's available. And, you know, the best way to understand it is when you watch the ads, if you're watching any of the ads for any of these sports betting uh, um, companies now that Canada uh, or Ontario and Canada or for sure have uh, made it available such that you can do sports betting in a different way, uh, many more um, applications and platforms available than before now that the laws have changed. But if you look at some of these ads, I mean, you're watching guys like Wayne Gretzky, Austin Matthews, coming through your TV screen and billboards and, and they're, and they're talking to you about, you know, the ease by which you can, you know, place an ad right? or place a, place a bet, right? These ads are very, um, enticing. It's like these are, and the concern that I have with it primarily is that the people that are suggesting that this is an okay thing to do, um, and, and for many of us, it is an okay thing to do, but there's many people who have a difficulty with gaming and gambling. And for them, this is a nightmare because they see these ads everywhere. And they, any, anytime, you know, you're watching a regular TV show, for example, these days, there's all types of ads, uh, social media as well, over radio as well. Um, all forms of media are really pushing these platforms, right? And the addiction experts are concerned that the loosened sports betting laws uh, and accompanying ads create challenges for problem gamblers. Uh, so this one fellow, his name is Noah. He's 48. He certainly has, hasn't been easy for him. He calls himself a compulsive gambler in recovery. He's now celebrating four years of abstinence, means he hasn't placed a bet. And he says he's thankful he didn't have to deal with the influx of ease of sports gambling before he stopped. You can't sit down to watch TV, anything on TV anymore, he says, without going through an, an hour without watching multiple gaming ads, uh, says the father of four. Um, he lives in Ottawa. He started gambling in high school through a form of parlay betting called ProLine. Everybody remembers ProLine. Lots of people do it. Lots of people did it, which is betting that involves correctly predicting at least three different events to receive any kind of payout. Noah refers to himself again as a compulsive gambler in recovery. He says he's gambled away more than a million dollars. Well, in 2021, the federal government made it legal to gamble on individual sporting events, giving provinces the ability to regulate it themselves. So before that, six provinces allowed parlay betting. The 2021 bill allowed for single game bets such as the outcome, let's say, of the Super Bowl. So now you don't have to predict three events that happen before you win. You just have to predict one event. So Ontario became the first province to create a regulated sports betting program, and that was launched in April, and it came in the onslaught of ads. Even if you change channels during commercials, sports broadcasters are talking about it during the game, fans are talking about it, everybody's talking about these new uh, sports platforms. And experts say that the way sports gambling has evolved is also very dangerous. And why? And what, why is this a, a, an issue for us? And why has this become a, a thing? I'll tell you why. Because um, David Hodgkins, he's a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary and coordinator with the Alberta Gaming Research Institute, says that slot machines and casino games are some of the riskiest forms of gambling because they provide instant results. 
people who struggle with problem gambling are the highest risk of suicide than any other addiction, according to Amanda LaPrade, and she's a gambling counselor here in Ontario. Sports gambling has evolved to become much like slot machines. Uh, people can now bet on on, on minute details of a, of a game, not just its results. So people are given the opportunity, same constant source of game gambling, uh, like when they play slot machines. So it's kind of an instant result. You can bet online 24 hours a day on multiple on multiple different sport types of sports. It's become more like slot machine betting in terms of being very fast paced. And that's a concern for people that have a problem with gaming. He says there's also a sense that people can get good at it and improve their ability to make bets. So, which isn't really the case. I mean, you, eventually you're gonna, you know, you're gonna win, you're gonna lose, you're gonna win, you're gonna lose. That's the way it works, right? Experts worry though about the influence of Ontario sports betting ads. The ads themselves, they're popping up everywhere, leaving some experts concerned that they could reach audiences outside the province and entice them to play on unregulated gaming sites. So it's, it's making gaming, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's giving, it's giving it some form of, uh, of, of, um, of luster. It's giving it some form of, of pizzazz that makes it like something that everyone should be doing. Um, our, our compulsive gambler, he compares it to living a double life. He called in sick from work as a bus driver so he could focus on making bets. He even had a separate bank account that he would get some of his payouts, some of his pay put into it so that his family wouldn't see it. Sometimes he would win, but then eventually the money was gone just as quickly. He figures, as I said earlier, lost about a million dollars. I won giant amounts, he said, and then turned around and blew it all, playing video blackjack on the toilet, and it just seems like it's nonsense. Anyway, the inundation of ads that uh, Amanda LaPrade uh, is concerned about. She's the um, the gambling expert we talked about, the consult, the counselor. She's a problem gambling counselor at Redowood Redowood Addiction and Family Services in Ottawa. Her clients who have uh, sports betting and gaming addictions tell her that the ads have become more aggressive than ever seen before. And and by the way, this is similar to people that deal with online ads for uh, alcohol or anything like, you know, uh, talking about, um, you know, the, 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 the luxe or the, gli- the, the, the glimmer and the glitz that is behind the, the experience of drinking. It's not really that case for people that have a problem with it. It's okay if it's, you know, you can drink once in a while or, you know, in some uh, controlled way and it doesn't control you, then we're not talking about you. Talking about you, people that have a problem. The same too with those folks that have a problem with gaming. You know, when you see Wayne Gretzky or actor Jamie Foxx showing up in these sporting eight bets, it, 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 it's concerning about who's going to be affected. Younger and younger generations, right? I mean, Gretzky's a, you know, an older generation kind of a famous player, but every kid knows who Wayne Gretzky is. And most kids know who Jamie Foxx is as a result of the movies he's been in. And according to uh, to uh, Amanda, I'm concerned that it's going to be geared toward younger and younger generations. We're going to see those people later in her practice, she said. Um, as, as I mentioned, Amanda is a problem gaming consultant, gambling counselor at Rito Wood Addiction and Family Services in Ottawa. That's what they specialize in. That's what she specializes in. We see these celebrities who look like they have it all. Like it's, you know, like, well, you know, you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. And that, you know, they depict the, their gambling experience or gaming experience to this great life. She says that the dopamine that the brain receives when someone's waiting for the results of the bets, like a player hitting a slot or goalie making a save, it's just as powerful when the result actually happens. So that's what makes it so addictive. Um, the experts believe that sports bet 
betting ads should be regulated. She used the United Kingdom as an example where we saw an uptick in addictions following the legalization of sports betting. There, the government decided to prohibit sports betting ads before 9 p.m. So there's ways to look at this uh, free-for-all of advertising, and there's ways that we need to look at this so that we're clear that we're not sending the wrong message to the wrong people at the wrong time. Believe sports betting, uh, the experts believe sports betting ads should be uh, should be dealt with in a way that um, is uh, geared towards adults, more of an old adult thinking than just a free for all during any form of uh, advertising um, uh, clock during the day. Right. So by making you know making it available to people who likely will uh, you know at least the young people, keeping them kind of off the track is is probably a good idea. But you know that's the time at night when people that have issues with gaming and gambling come out to play anyway. So people who struggle with problem gambling are at the highest risk of suicide, according to the experts. You know why? Because the devastation of loss can happen right in a second notice. Suddenly you lose everything, you lose the house, you lose your business, and this is true. People have lost everything to gambling, to gaming and gambling, and then there's nothing left. There's no one around. No one knows what's happening. It's happening in silence, and they're likely to want to kill themselves thinking that uh, perhaps their insurance is a benefit to their family or they're better off not blowing all their family's money. Um, I know families, I deal with families all the time who are split up as a result of one uh, one or the other having a, a serious gaming problem, gambling problem, and uh, really losing everything that the family saves over time. So it's it's this new gaming, this new gambling uh, format, um, way too enticing for people who have a problem. Uh, maybe not necessarily for you and I, but for people that have a problem, we need to pay attention to them as well. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about um, a subject we talked about before here, and that's the traumatic effect of phoning the police when you're in a mental health crisis and what happens when they show up and the impact that that has. When we come back, we're going to talk to some expert about, an expert about that. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. It's now around 1019 here in Toronto. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? If not, you should probably find them. If you can't find them, you should probably reach out to 911 and see if they can help you out. If you want to reach me at all during the week, you can do that at 877-777-5808. Or you can call or email me at road to recovery at 640toronto.com. Love to hear from you and we'll take your information and use it in whatever way we can to improve the show or just share information with others that you think is important and let us know about it. We um, are talking right now about police apprehensions. Uh, what happens when someone with a mental illness uh, calls and ends up getting a police response? Uh, let me give you a quick story before we bring our guest on board here. Um, I've done probably 200 or so suicide calls in my career. I uh, did a lot of it, uh, obviously, when I was a bit younger. Um, not so much of it these days. Um, and, you know, whether I'm showing up to some 15-year-old person's, you know, house or their garage or they're hidden in a ravine somewhere, uh, you know, I'm showing up with, you know, McDonald's if it's a kid or, you know, coffee and, and cigarettes if it's an adult, uh, donuts, whatever. Um, never showed up to a suicide call without something in my hand to break the ice. So the idea of de-escalation is really what we're talking about. And in order to help people that are in that crisis state, de-escalating the situation is what's critical. 
And here there's a story that we're talking about, a 28-year-old woman who decided to go to her doctor. She complained about uh, her mental health. The next thing she knows, she was in handcuffs, taken off to a hospital. Um, and, you know, the whole situation was a very negative situation for her. It wasn't at all supportive. The first hospital she went to was full, so they drove her to a different one. Um, and she felt that she'd been mistreated throughout the whole environment. At some level, it shows a failure of our system, according to David Gradsner, a psychiatrist and co-chief of the General Adult Psychiatry and Health Systems Division at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. He said the mental health system has historically been un- underfunded and has only become more stretched during COVID-19. People are becoming very ill in our community. And when that, and when they could have been helped before they ended up being picked up by the police. The person joining me this evening, her name is Jennifer Chambers. She's the executive director of the Empowerment Council. Jennifer, how are you this evening? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, we, we're having this discussion uh, over and over again uh, about the impact of a crisis response unit not necessarily being, um, you know, maybe set up properly for success, um, you know, not necessarily necessarily knowing what you're going to get to when you show up. And we find that this escalates um, the situation for a lot of people and causes um, maybe more harm than good in a lot of cases, maybe not all of the cases, but, you know, clearly you and I know that police are called if someone's in a, you know, in a position to harm themselves or others. That's kind of the benchmark. Um, but according to the new statistics, the number of people apprehended by police under Ontario Mental Health Act in Toronto's increased dramatically in the, in, in the years uh, recently conducted more than 13,000 apprehensions in 2021 alone. That's up 81% from 2014. Also in 2021, the second year of the pandemic, apprehensions shot up by 14% year over year. What does this tell you about the state of mental health system right now, um, certainly in Ontario and uh, in the GTA? Well, the increase in numbers is primarily due to the population increase in Toronto and the fact that mental health services that were already lacking uh, were not increased in response to the increase in the population. So every year it gets worse. Uh, the way that resources are, are spent actually makes no sense on either a human or an ec- economic level. So there's a lack of basic needs being met and a lack of, of services being provided in the community. And then this drives people to the most costly alternative, costly to people's well-being as well as most expensive, which is hospitals and jails. Uh, and the, the provincial government uh, stopped funding crisis services in the east and west ends of the city that so for a while, there's only the Gerstein operating downtown, which is a great... And the Gerstein Center is a great crisis service, but they can't serve the entire GTA. Right. So, so recently, the city has stepped up with the four Toronto community-based pilots. Um, but, of course, the city doesn't have the deep pockets of the province. So the province really has to step up and start funding uh, better community-based services uh, throughout Ontario. An example would be that Ontario used to be a world leader with, in peer-run services, which actually saved millions of dollars by preventing days in hospitals, um, but there's almost no peer services remaining that are funded by the government anymore. So what do we, you know, where does this go, you think, in the future in terms of 
Um, we, we know that, you know, responding with uh, people in uniform can be triggering. We know that uh, it causes, uh, uh, often causes a negative reaction, less, uh, less interest in the, in the potential, the person has, who's in crisis to get the potential care that they want. You know, I talked about my story out of the gate, you know, many suicide calls that I, you know, showed up to with donuts and McDonald's and such. Um, we, we don't seem to be learning from the de-escalation model. Um, what do you sort of how do you respond to that? Uh, well, I mean, some police do a very good job on mental health calls. They, they successfully de-escalate a lot of calls, and then they just sort of the person is calm, they go away, everything's fine. But um, the trouble is that the police are the only people funded sufficiently to show up twenty four seven fairly promptly. So that's the, the reason that they have become the kind of default mental health system providers. Sounds ridiculous, but that's that's the reality. Um, and while the police, while some police uh, do a good job of de-escalating, uh, there are other stories, too, of callousness and use of force. And, of course, they come armed. And in an instant, things can go horribly wrong. I'm actually involved in an inquest that's just about to start of such a case of semi a team. Um, so, and even for an average, you know, what's called an apprehension, which makes... A, it sounds like a person's committed a crime, kind of a right. bad word. Um, right. It can be humiliating and traumatic to be in the back of a police car, often in handcuffs. Imagine being handcuffed just because you're so miserable you want to end your own life. So what's that going to do to your state of mind and feeling of safety? Right. So um, interesting that you say that by de facto, it's kind of the de facto mental health team because they're available 24-7. Um, next question would be, you know, why... Why not fire service? Why not the you know paramedic team? Uh, why is the, are the are, are police first responders? We know it's because there's potential danger uh, to themselves or to others. But uh, you know, like like with these four units that are being set up, these these crisis teams in conjunction with police, it's a great model. Um, obviously, we need that model twenty four seven and and more available. But why would it not be more of a of a of an ambulance call, if you will? Um, well, paramedics are not especially trained in mental health or de-escalation. I think they get even less training than police. Um, so having dedicated mental health workers to respond to people in crisis is actually the best way to go because then they can be specifically focused on people who are having um, issues that they don't always arise because of mental health problems in the first place. Sometimes... Uh, what appears to be a mental health crisis arrives from life circumstances, such as being homeless or, um, yeah. you know, different things yeah. that cause unbearable stress with people. And yeah. the, the crisis workers with the four different uh, crisis alternatives that are happening in Toronto right now can respond in ways that can have a long-term helpfulness to people as well. They can set them up with services that they need. Tell me, but, so actually, I encourage any, anyone who's listening, I encourage you to call 211 uh, in case of a mental health emergency, as long as there's no danger, and see if the crisis workers can come to help rather than calling 911. That's good. Not, not many people know that number, and we should talk about that again. 211 is, in fact, the crisis number to call, and hopefully you get the kind of response you need. Uh, before we go to break here, I have a real quick question for you. Not quick question, mm -hmm. a, a question. A question for you. Um, prior, like... 
prior to the adoption uh, or adoption of these four units, uh, these four crisis units, um, we see a lot, I've heard a lot about the impact, the negative impact of a crisis call. Um, in, a, in a minute or so, give me an idea of what happens when they show up and things go badly. Well, people can die. Um, I've been part of a dozen inquests where people have died in encounters with police who've been in people who were in crisis at the time. And use of force, of course, can happen, and the danger isn't spread evenly. And no matter how it's analyzed, the use of force happens more to people who are black, for example. Um, right. And then most people who end up in the mental health system are trauma survivors, many survivors of abuse. So right. it's going to add to their trauma and mental health problems to be if they're terrified. Um, by a call from police, because most people are abused by people more powerful than them, which pretty Correct. much defines the police. Yeah, and we also have this whole piece of, uh, you know, uniformed officers showing up. Perhaps they had, like you said, they had an interaction with police at another time. Most people with mental health issues have not, you know, for the most part, certainly ones I meet have had more than one interaction with police over time or been in custody in in an emergency ward. Mm-hmm. And that causes them to really, you know, think twice about whether they're going to call, you know, call the police when, you know, the next time, uh, or they feel like they need there's a need. And chances are the police are being called by usually others, not necessarily themselves. Right. When we when we come back from break, uh, uh, Jennifer, you stick with us, and uh, I have a whole bunch more questions around this, and the least of which we can talk about when you come back is the, you know, the 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 the, the misreading of the circumstances in terms of people's gender or or uh, sexuality or you know the state of mind in terms of uh, substance abuse or use um, need to do a think a better job of, of looking at that when they show up so as soon as we come back from break here we're going to continue to talk with Jennifer Chambers she's the executive director of the Empowerment Council we're going to find out what they do as well you're listening to the road to recovery my name is Yona Bud 640 Toronto welcome back to road to recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto and welcome back to the show. We're talking about uh, traumatic events when someone calls police for a mental health call. Um, it says here, a recent study published in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry about the rise in involuntary psychiatric hospitalizations in British Columbia reported that apprehensions are often traumatic experiences that generate distrust in police and the mental health system, and people who endure them may be discouraged from seeking out that care in the future. In some cases, what constitutes a voluntary and involuntary health care may not be as clear as the general public assumes, while popular debates contrast police use of force to supposedly softer approaches like interventions from crisis workers. Jennifer Chambers, Executive Director of the Empowerment Council, a Toronto not-for-profit, said it's important to remember the mental health system also uses force. Welcome back, Jennifer. We have you with us. Um, Jennifer is the executive director, as we know, the Empowerment Council. Before we get to this little piece again, give me an idea. What does the Empowerment Council do? Like, what's what's your mandate and how does how does it play into what we're talking about tonight? Uh, we're a tiny organization um, and we do advocacy on the systemic level, so on the policy level. So we represent the voice of people who've been in the mental health or addiction system on a sort of broader scale. So we try to make changes to large systems like government legislation or, the, or police policies and hospital policies. We do, we do quite a bit of education work as well. 
Amazing. So, you know, the um, I guess you get your head around this whole $355 billion health spending uh, since 2016 towards community mental health and addiction programs. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen a lot of that money on the street. Have you? No, it's not enough. And uh, if you consider that uh, mental health and addiction problems are one of the major health issues in the country, they get a pittance of the health budget which overall also needs to be increased as, as a large envelope. But the mental health um, is particularly egregiously lacking in terms of in compared to what people need. Yeah, I don't think people really understand the impact. Uh, well, they will over time because we're going to see it in our kids over the years to come. And I've mm. been saying this since the beginning of the pandemic. The real the real tsunami of, of bad health or the real pandemic uh, is yet to uh, share, show its head in a real form. The stigma, um, Jennifer, the stigma around um, mental health, um, it still stops people, right, from seeking support, especially when they hear stories around uh, police uh, interactions that don't turn out well, right? You don't really usually hear about the ones that turn out well. Usually you hear the stories about the ones that don't. How do we right. how do we turn that around? Uh, well, all you have to do is say the word mental patient to know that prejudice still exists because it's yeah. still a, 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 a term that people use to insult each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it usually implies some kind of combination of being um, incompetent or scary. Uh, so, so people often think, therefore, that the police have to be called in to deal with people, but uh, that that's not the case. There's, there's many situations in which other people can uh, address um, people being in crisis. And the system also needs to be much more accountable to the people who they exist to serve because people can be scared away from the system from encounters with police and other people who are forcing services on them, but also some people don't find the system contains what they really need, or if it does, they can't access it. For example, uh, I mentioned that most people in the system are trauma survivors, but it's extremely difficult to get therapy if you don't have money. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I have a a patient now that I'm dealing with. She's a, I I have many patients in my past that dealt with uh, abuse and uh, sexual assault and so on, and they have very difficult time mm-hmm. finding uh, appropriate care and care that can be provided on an ongoing basis once you're out of hospital. Um, you said the mental mm-hmm. health system uses force, and, and you and I both know, clearly you've got experiences, so do I. When you go to a, a psychiatric ward, a psychiatric unit in a hospital, they're still using uh, the ability, they're still using uh, you know uh, restraints, uh, you know, attaching people to their beds, uh, using medications in in a restraining kind of way, um, you know, you and I understand that that's okay for the immediacy in terms of someone's immediate um, moment of crisis, but it's not therapy. It's not even close to therapy, and you know, it keeps people from wanting to sign themselves in, so to speak. So it has to be involuntary. How do we? How are we going to do that? How are we going to make the the whole interaction between people that are in need of mental health care and those providing it, whether it's police or hospitals or, you know, uh, medical facilities or rehab centers, whoever, uh, with all this money the government's supposed to be spending, how are we going to make that sort of more in- inviting, more more uh, enticing as opposed to scary? Because if you go, you're going to be locked down for 72 hours. Like anyone with a mental health issue, um, with a revolving you know, issue, recurring issue, chronic issue, they know the system well enough. So if they report the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, they know they're going to be they're going to be locked down. How are we how are we going to get past this, Jennifer? I think by providing services that people want to use, uh, there's developed this tendency to provide services that people have to be forced to use because yeah. 
um, they're traumatizing services and people don't want them. Whereas there's other services that people are clamoring to use that have massively long waiting lists and those services aren't provided. It makes no sense. Uh, so to provide the services that people need at a lower level and then you're not going to have as many people who end up in the hospital in restraints. Sometimes because they're harming others, but not always. Sometimes people are unjustifiably um, restrained. Uh, so... And it's not restricted just to mental health services. People can be driven into a crisis through lack of basic human needs like housing, um, food. You know, the, the uh, yeah, um, you know, when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with a mental health issue, chances are, at least in my experience, uh, when I've been able to get to a call early enough, it doesn't have to escalate to a point mm-hmm. of someone or another feeling like the person's out of control. It's usually the responding person. It's usually like a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a lover, a friend, somebody, uh, a partner, someone responding. It's usually not the person themselves calling typically for this kind of response. Uh, so someone's, you know, watching somebody react or act in a way that they, they can't control. So when they can't control, they get scared. And as a result of the person who's viewing the, the person who's experienced uh, unrest in their mental health, they're watching that person, you know, go through whatever they're going through. I mean, you know, I have OCD, anxiety disorder and ADD. There are, there are days, you know, not often, but there are days where my, my anxiety and my OCD, my anxiety, and OCD are out of control. And if you were to look at me, you know, you would quote unquote say, well, he looks like a crazy person, you know, which is what you were saying earlier about being a mental health patient using that term. You know, you'd look at me like a guy who's, you know, out of control because maybe for that hour, I'm trying to get myself back together and I'm out of control. But for someone who doesn't know it, They'd be frightened by it, make the call. I'm then apprehended, and what could have been a managed situation is now way out of control. It's the earlier intervention. Um, based on the people you talk to and the work you're doing to try to change things, how do we provide the earlier intervention? How, what, what, what can we do at that level? Well, one of the really successful um, services that has existed in the mental health system are peer support services. So an advantage of peer support services is that people can, the medium is also the message. So people can meet other people who've had experience of being in a crisis state and who are now doing really well and who can talk about what it was like to be there. And it really gets past a lot of the, the prejudice and discrimination that keeps people, um, from being able to feel better because they are down on themselves. Because just yeah. because it's happening to you doesn't mean you don't have the same prejudice that other people do. So people can often end up hating themselves and not uh, reaching out to other people when they need them. And I do think that most of us are one bad day or one support system away from yeah. ending up yeah. in the mental health system. You know, we, we, so we need to understand how easily this can happen. Um, and the government has to start providing for people's uh, services in a way that's accountable to the people who are needing the services. Often the governments make decisions based on the recommendations of people who are already employed in the mental health system, which is kind of a conflict of interest. They need to talk more to the people who are needing uh, supports instead. Yeah, you said something here about uh, consent-based care. You know, you we we know that when someone gets uh, into the system, they're often uh, the first seventy-two hours are usually 
not with their consent. Uh, hopefully, once they're mellowed out a little bit and they get their feet on the ground, they realize that you know they can get some help, uh, whether they choose to stay there to get the help or not. It's the concept of voluntary versus involuntary. Uh, can you opine on that just a little bit more? I think people need to understand what that really means. Well, it's sort of the difference between being locked in a room that you're not allowed to use, to leave, I mean, versus just you know, being in a room that you choose to be in. Uh, so it's, it's, it can be scary to, to be someplace that you can't leave. That is kind of the most serious thing that we do to people, put them in prison in places where they're not allowed to leave. And then add to that the danger, even if it doesn't happen to you, seeing other people sort of strapped to a, a gurney or locked in a room they can't leave or injected against your will, it can all be very frightening. Um, any of those things that happen to a member of the general public would be considered terribly traumatic uh, incidents. And just because somebody's in a psychiatric facility doesn't mean that it's not traumatic for the person. So, um, But people, things don't have to get to that state. I guess people were just provided more um, options at another level for more culturally based services, for example, yeah. people who are First Nations or Inuit or Métis uh, have been hugely lacking in culture based services, and so have people from. I mean, Canada has a very high population of people who immigrated, and there has to be consideration of what different cultures provide as part of their healing process as well. Sure, it sounds like therapy in a language they just don't understand. Talking to Jennifer Chambers, she's our guest this evening, Executive Director of the Empowerment Council. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for your time. Really appreciate uh, all the knowledge and all the hard work you and your organization uh, do out there. Uh, when we come back, we got a little bit of work to do. We're going to go back to this conversation about learning for uh, online learning being the blame for mental health issues affecting our young people, and I personally think that's a crock. So come back and join me here. You'll be able to give me a call as well, 416 870 well, as soon as we come back from break, do you think that uh, online learning is what's messing up our kids as a result of this whole pandemic break? I don't think so. I'd like to hear what you think. We'll be right back on the road to recovery. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the last segment here on the Road to Recovery. This is the time of the evening where I get a little sad because I'm going to miss you guys till next week, right? That's the whole other week I got to wait to play with you again. But uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight. And uh, yeah, we still got a little bit to do. If you want to give me a call here, if you think that online learning is what's causing kids' mental health these days to be out of control, you think that's where we should blame it? 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. And we will stand by. We have people standing by to take your call. You know, it's the end of the night. I've been grinding for a couple hours, talking to a lot of people and, you know, kind of heard some really interesting things from some very smart people and shared some such, some stuff with you all. And then I get to the last segment, um, where it's kind of, you know, Yona unplugged, right? Kind of a little, I'm loose, ready to go, right? So, um, this whole concept of blaming online learning for the cause of young people's decline in mental health. It's just a bunch of crap. You know, it's the online learning concept for so many people. Let me tell you about 
Let me tell you about a, a couple of patients I have. I have one young person who has an anxiety disorder around social anxiety um, for years and years. He's he's uh, he's in uh, in the middle of high school, and um, doesn't matter what grade, it's irrelevant. He's in the middle of high school, and um, you know, for him, going to school many days was very difficult, very triggering. Lots of days missed uh, over the course of the last three or four years. Probably missed uh, anywhere from 50 to 70 days a year from school as a result of not being able to get out of the house because of the overbearing and overpowering uh, mental health issues that uh, he had to deal with. Online learning for him, he had his best two years ever. Like, really. And is continuing, <clears throat> excuse me, doing online learning three out of the five days a week and has special dispensation to do that, and will be going to university next year with also special consideration for his requirements to learn from home as well as in class. Online learning has a lot of benefits to a lot of people. There's a lot of folks that find it difficult to get to class. There's a lot of folks that um, that live in situations where the parents, where parents, you know, aren't able to, uh, are both working, and there may be a younger sibling in the home that has to stay home that day because the the, the kid is sick or the brother or sister is sick or something, whatever. Um, the older child able to stay home now and not miss class uh, if they're able to catch up through online learning. There's a lot of benefits to online learning, but if online learning is the only learning you get then it's a problem for a lot of people. Some don't do well. There's as many kids that don't do well as the young fellow I was telling you about that do much better in class, that prefer the face-to-face -face conversations, that prefer to, prefer to see the teacher in, in action, the, the social interaction amongst their classmates, the, the, the fooling around, if you want, in between class. All of that stuff is a big part of what makes young people uh, what make young people happy and, and, and complete in their educational um, endeavors. Right. It's so it's taking away the socialization. It's taking away their ability to exercise. It's taking away their ability to hang out after class. It's taking away their ability to, you know, for, go for, for Tim Hortons at lunchtime or wherever they go, McDonald's, wherever they go at lunch as a group and socialize and, and kind of kibitz on the way there and joke around on the way there and back. Right. So the perceived relationship between online learning and the reduced mental health amongst young people, I think is, is we're looking in, we're looking in the wrong place. We need to look at the other, the other things that are causing the decline in young people's mental health. We have to look at the effects of online activities that aren't educationally related. All the online postings and immediate needs and that are, that have to be met with, you know, instant posts and all the stuff that you get when, you know, you send somebody a message and then it gets wiped away, but maybe not really. And it gets passed on to somebody else. And the next thing you know, you're embarrassed by what you sent and the whole world sees it or certainly your whole world sees it. And that causes all kinds of concerns and people wanting to hurt themselves. Some kids want to kill themselves because of embarrassing stuff out there. We've got to be looking at that. Not looking at online learning. Online learning is a great thing for kids that use it to their advantage. God forbid, you know, a kid get, breaks his leg. I mean, I remember when I was a kid years ago, I had a, I, I snapped my, my knee and it was in a, in a cast. I think I was in grade seven or eight. It was in a cast for like 10 weeks, 11 weeks. Going to school was a pain in the bum. And it happened to me. I think I can say that. I'm allowed to say bum. I think nobody beeped me. So I think I'm okay. It was a pain. I had to take the little bus, you know, that little bus, the little yellow bus that kids took that uh, needed special care. I took that bus. Eventually, you know, it just became such a pain. I ended up snapping the thing. I slipped on the ice. It was all during the wintertime. I slipped on the ice and snapped the, the, the cast a couple of times. 
if I could have stayed home and done online learning, I mean, in those days we were, you know, communicating through paper cup and a string. But if I was able to do online learning, it would have been a game changer, a game changer for any kid in recovery, coming out of some surgery, coming out of some form of, of procedure. It's an ability for kids to catch up where they couldn't before. There's a real good place for that. And for us to look at it in the negative light that this is the reason that our kids today, our young people today, have unsettled mental health is because of online learning. We're missing the advantages to online learning. We're looking at it in the wrong, with the wrong set of eyes. It's not the online learning. It's the environment that they were forced to live within around the online learning. And frankly, not a lot of teachers spent a lot of time preparing for these online classes, and they weren't so impactful. I actually sat in on a couple accidentally with some young people I know just to see what was going on, and the teacher wasn't working too hard. Basically, like I, when I was a kid, I was taught when you do a PowerPoint presentation, when you're showing it to somebody, don't read it. They can read it themselves. You don't have to read them the PowerPoint presentation. They can read it themselves. So, too, when you're teaching a kid a class, they can read. That's why they're, you know, they're in school. They can read. Reading them the material is, is not teaching. It's not the education that they're looking for. It's not the way to reach young people. You've got to try a little harder, put in a little more effort, make it a little more dramatic, a little more exciting, a little more engaging, like we do with kids in anything we're doing in life these days. So I don't know. There's uh world's up in the air, especially for kids, a very difficult time for young people to, to try to figure out who they are and where they fit and, and, and what the world has to offer them going forward. Let's give them all the support we can. Let's give them the understanding that they need. Let's make sure that we're there to coddle them if coddling is what's required or a firm hand if a firm hand is required. Right? It's a whole new world out there, my friends. And if you have children, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't have children, you still know what I'm talking about. If you're working with you know, any environment where there's kids involved, you go to a restaurant or something, and there's a kid serving you, they're just not the same as they were several years back. They've just lost a little luster, and we need to help them find that luster. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Make it a great week, my friends. As my mom would say when she was alive, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything nice at all. Don't say anything else at all. If you can't say something nice, don't speak about somebody and spread nice. Give people a hug. Tell them you love them. Tell them they mean something to you. That's what makes the world a better place. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. You're on the road to recovery. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.